Rack your look for spring at Nordstrom Rack and save up to 60% on brands you love. Rag & Bone, Vince, Marc Jacobs, Adidas, Joes, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. Score new dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and sunglasses, plus updates for the family and home. Get your spring on for less, up to 60% less, today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Hello everybody, it is your demonic bruiser, Holden McNeely. And it is I, your European old wizard, Jake. <laughs> it is I, your old European wizard, Jake. It is I, your old European wizard, Jake. It is I, your old Fuck European your wizard. It is I, your old European wizard. Fuck your mother. Your mother sucks cocks. Oh, my God. A little girl said that? I'm sorry. Uh, an adult man said that? Ah, fuck, fuck. Ah. Oh, my God. Such salty language. All the dinners. Oh. <laughs> um, Pazuzu says hi, fucko. Jake, I have been freaking myself out in my apartment all afternoon. How has your day been going? Uh, I watched this movie for the first First time in my entire life this week. Whoa, I love that. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and throw this out there because I was just thinking about this earlier. Uh, I probably top three horror movies of all time. I think I I think I could definitely reconsider this, but I'm pretty sure they would have to be um, The Exorcist, The Shining, and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Not necessarily in that order, mm-hmm. but I feel like that kind of covers it all for me. It, it has everything for me. I love The Exorcist. It is phenomenal. I love the fact that Lexi can't even watch it. Mm-hmm. It's that scary for her and many other people. It's that real. There's, it, um, there's a recurring type that I noticed uh, this week when talking to people because um, this movie has always had this air of mystery, this air of power, and we'll get into why yes. uh, in, the, in, the, uh, in the hour that will come. Yes. But uh, the people that I've talked to who are absolutely like sh- completely shut down when the topic of the movie comes up uh, shares a couple of things. Uh, number one, a Catholic upbringing. Uh-huh. And uh, number two, uh, having a weird nerd dad who showed them the film way too young in life <laughs> when they were not fucking prepared for it. So uh, uh, my story is kind of like that. Uh, this actually brought back a memory of a thing that every now and again I'll drunkenly talk about with friends. There was a summer. I was a pretty A, lonely child, uh, B, a movie buff. And uh, my parents at some point... And I think that they probably shouldn't have done this, but they essentially got to the point where they were like, okay, you want to sit at home and watch TV all day? Fucking fine. We're going to be at work. 
We're not going to force you to play sports anymore. You you hate base basketball camp. They put a single hot dog on the floor for yeah. you to eat. <laughs> yeah. Well, once I could like you know make my own meals and like blah 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 and take care of myself and whatever. I mean, I mean, I was laying around and watching a lot of stuff. But my mom did this incredibly cool thing for me. She had a coworker, I believe it was a coworker, who had a side business where she had essentially like a walk-in closet wall to wall of VHSs. She was just also a movie buff and an avid collector of films. And at the beginning of the summer, I had this giant menu of movies and I marked through all the movies I ever wanted to see that was on the menu. And then based off of that, she, uh, looking at what I chose, like would throw in extras. And once a week, my mom would come home with a giant grocery bag full of movies I'd never seen before. And I would just binge watch them throughout the week. And I got such an education. I remember it was the first time I watched movies like Do the Right Thing, like Mississippi Burning. And The Exorcist, I believe, was one of them. Wow. And I remember putting that movie in, and I got to the desecration of the Virgin Mary statue moment. <laughs> and I just went, nope. I literally just, nope, done. I what? like turned it off immediately. You it was see like, I'm one done. Candy corn ding dong. You are out of there. That freaked me the fuck out as a kid. I mean, I was probably it was two at this to point. be done with mom modeling clay that was like the <sighs> crudeness and if you know in the movie uh it's uh reagan uh also like makes things out of modeling clay so it was supposed to suggest that like the infestation had already manifested without her knowing it, it was, was so fucked up to me i was like peace out this is way too much i think especially when back in the day especially because seven really fucked me up too when like mm. sex is ingrained in the horror in this really nasty way it freaked <laughs> freaked me out back then and still fucks me up a little bit today well, i mean in america it's kind of this funny thing that uh you know violence is like super common you know you can watch arnold schwarzenegger right. like eviscerate an entire uh commando unit with a machine gun no one bats an eye right but uh you know you show half a half a nip nop and people are gonna <laughs> i'm sorry i can't it's such a dirty word booble if you show a booble uh you know people will freak out this is not for kids this changes the whole rating uh, whereas in Europe, you can watch that shit in like daytime TV. Right, right. Uh, and and so I, it took me years to finally go back. I feel like I also wasn't a big horror buff back then. I became one in college. Um, not a buff, but I, I became a fan of the, yeah. the, the genre. And it wasn't until way later I finally rewatched it, um, probably in college, some sometime around then, maybe post-college, and really just was floored by how phenomenal. I mean, the movie was so good, it made me turn it. I was f so scared. Uh, I, no other movie has really done that to me, where I... I mean, you know, it was definitely at a young age. Oh, oh, you know what else did that to me? The Twilight Zone movie. Want to see something really scary? Oh, yeah, yeah, when, yeah, I, yeah. My parents were gone. My parents were away. Uh, <laughs> and uh, for that the and night, Marge Marge are a one-two punch yeah. of fucked up weird faces. My parents went away for the night uh, 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 or were out, you know, at some event. And I that movie was on HBO. And I was like, cool. I've never seen this. I love this kind of stuff. And then just that opening scene, I was like, Nope. And for the rest of the night, I was just horrified. But anyways, very few films have made me do that um, uh, back in the day or or currently. So anyways, shout out to The Exorcist. I love it. Now, Jake, what was your experience? 
so I think we talked about this during our uh, The Thing and Alien episodes, uh, and maybe even on our Friday the 13th, that there was always this hierarchy of American horror films, mm. especially mm-hmm. like on the playground in the 90s, which, you know, right. the kids with like, you know, the cool ones with like the widescreen projection TVs and the uh, stepdads, uh, you know, got to see all these movies way before uh, us precious, our precious faced uh, good kids. And, you know, uh, Alien's pretty scary and like, oh, the thing's way scarier, but The Exorcist is on a whole nother level. Yes. You can't even talk about The Exorcist. The Exorcist <laughs> was this like forbidden object. This well, like, this, in, there was power it, yeah, in those words. Yeah, I was about to say, it wields a power. Like I said, I mean, especially if you're at all religious, <laughs> which Lexi is, you know, I mean, that movie wields a power. Like uh, that, that no other. I mean, she also for the same reason she can't, she just can't handle stuff around demons, mm-hmm. which is understandable to me. I mean, the demon is the scariest monster in my opinion. He's he's, a, he's just is... a, a, a a entity on a mission to destroy everything in its path. Uh, like a serial killer has like a weird psychology. Uh, an alien has a, a physiology. Something that is born specifically just out of malice. Something that cannot be re- reasoned with. Yes. Something that is just unknowably just ill intended is truly terrifying. Truly because terrifying. there's no there's no wrapping your head around it. There's right. no there's no way to reason. There's no like yes. even entry point to understand it. Uh I will say that the scariest part of the movie for me uh was not the uh you know Captain Howdy random frames. It was not the uh big like uh the spider walk or anything. Uh it was when my walk. uh cat Nero jumped on my stomach when I wasn't looking and I immediately flailed around like I was having <laughs> a grand mal seizure. Well, and I was and we'll talk about this in a little bit in our episode once we get down and dirty, but uh this just uh, shows you the power of the movie. I was sitting at home to, to earlier today and it was probably cuz I needed to eat or whatever. Something was going on. It was like a weird it was dark outside. It was like weird and rainy earlier um or, or overcast earlier. And and I was reading about this cursed set and I was reading about all the weird things that happened when the movie came out and and I just started getting like lightheaded and starting and I was alone and I was just starting to feel a little scared like is what's what's going on I had to kind of check myself and I went for on a run to just get out of the apartment for a little bit but I feel like it was like a little psychosomatic just reading about all these things it started I started to feel odd and uncomfortable and upset and and just I you know it, and and it's a lot of things it's the grittiness of that film stock it's if you notice all three of the movies I mentioned were like from the 70s mm-hmm. 80s it's like the grittiness of the look of that film of that time uh, is very powerful, I think, for ho- the genre of horror. Anything that tries to go back and recapture that kind of just grainy, hard-bitten look, I feel it's like is very spe- effective. Specifically, the grittiness of the film stock, then through the extra layer of fuzz that is VHS, yes. means that anything can lurk in those blurry oh, shadows. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and just reading about uh, all, all of the weird things that went down with the cast and 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 uh, I just really I don't know. It felt like some entity was fucking with. Like even in that moment, I was just like foggy and weird, and I had to step away. But even more so than the demonic stuff, the movie itself is built on all these uncomfortable topics that we don't really talk about. Uh, teenage sexuality, uh, old age. Uh, you know uh, the the. If anything, what really upset me more than uh, the pea soup and the fucking uh, rattling beds, the the medical scenes, 
Yeah. Those stark hospital like scenes where it's just people like performing these uncomfortable procedures. They were real procedures. Yeah. That was real medical staff. That was at the NYU Medical Center. That and and a uh, um you'll you'll as you'll discover we there's a lot of um attempts at realness at at mm-hmm. legitimateness for all of, for many different things using a real Jesuit uh theology theologian I believe for uh, one of the character for one of the actors. Mm-hmm. You know the, the, I think. Friedkin, the director, uh, tried to insert as much real uh, realness into the film, which again just pushes it more and more towards being legitimately terrifying. The movie, by today's standards, starts very slowly. Yeah, it starts extremely slowly. I was kind of taken aback by how like long it was into the movie before you know stuff, quote unquote, starts really happening. Right. And the fact is, I don't know if the movie would have that same impact if it wasn't so thoroughly grounded in reality. So just like absolutely establishing this believable world that uh, is almost is just mundane in its in the way that he shoots it like a documentarian. Uh-huh. And so when shit hits the fan, when it's down to that final confrontation in that bedroom where, you know, it's in theory, it's it will get into how the production was made. But that was the most artificial uh, set in the entire production. Mm-hmm. But when it's finally down to that battle, reality is thrown out the window, but I'm so grounded in this reality that I buy that this is happening. Yeah, I mean, you've got actual, it's shot in near actual ancient cities. It's shot, you know, uh, it's the true story that it's based on, which we're about to get into, um, is is uh, priests from Georgetown University, and it's shot in Georgetown, where actually the author, uh, um, William, what's his name? Bill Blatty. Blatty. Bill Blatty actually went um, as as a kid. So there's just so much reality seeping through this whole thing that all of the supernatural elements just are elevated and made that much more concerningly real. You know, they did actually do uh, archaeological digs below the famous steps in Georgetown that are that was so iconic in this movie. And uh, surprise, they found Indian bones. Of course they found they Indian found bones. They found fucking corpses. Surprise, they didn't find some other crazy bones in there. You know what I mean? America, it's built on bones. <laughs> Baby teeth and all that stuff. They're probably <laughs> sitting down there. Well, let us start off this terrifying tale. Let us start. We're 12 minutes in the podcast. Let us start off with a terrifying tale of the exorcism of Roland Doe. Let's take a little trip down last podcast on the left lane and talk about the the supposed real-life exorcism uh, that this whole thing was inspired by. So... Around 1949, several articles appeared um, in in newspapers, and uh, apparently they were coming from the reports of a pastor, Luther Miles Schultz, who was the former pastor of the family in question. And this is all concerning a story that happened in the late 1940s. The Roman Catholic Church performing several exorcisms on an anonymous 14-year-old boy who was given the pseudonym of both Roland Doe and Robbie Mannheim. Now, Raymond Bishop, the priest involved, recorded the events in a diary, and apparently uh, the, the, a lot, all of this, a lot of this comes from these reports. Um, so, Roland was said to be an only child in a German Lutheran family and therefore spent a good deal of playtime with adults, especially his aunt Harriet, who was a spiritualist, believing the spirits of the dead exist, you know, like Dan Aykroyd from Dan the Ghostbusters. A- she was a Dan Aykroyd type. She was a bit of an Aykroyd uh, and, and introduced Roland to a Ouija board. Now, after Aunt Harriet's death, the family started experiencing really bizarre stuff, strange noises, furniture, 
furniture moving, vases flying or levitating, and only when the boy was close by. So they brought in a Luther Miles Schultz, uh, who I mentioned before, for help. Uh, who observed the same thing when he had the boys stay at his house, so not even at their house. We had uh, before, therefore, advising them to seek a Catholic priest. Now, again, I want to first of all, how out of your league do you have to be, right? Where you are literally like a Lutheran, like the actual progenitor of the Protestant Reformation, and like as soon as you, as soon as the bed starts shaking and weird scars start appearing, you got to be like, you know, we got to get the fucking Romans in here. We gotta, you know, you know what uh, we. Said a lot of things about a lot of indulgences, but this is spooky. Get a fucking get someone with a crazy hat in here. I, I also another reason why this freaked me out so much and really freaked me out with paranormal activity, mm-hmm. uh, uh, because that's also centered around a demonic force. Is that oh, in a haunted house, you can just leave the house. <laughs> the ghosts are trapped in that, and ghosts don't follow you around. But a demon, there's no escaping. And that was the whole thing. And in paranormal activity, they were like. Oh, we'll just go somewhere else. It's like, you know, the demon attaches to a person and you are fucked, you know? So anyways, it happened at his house. He he gets uh, he gets some some folks involved. Right. There's a lot of parallels to the story that ends up becoming the exorcist. Uh, Even something as mundane as the fact that the first hints that something was wrong was that there was scritching and the noise and the sound of what should have been rats in the house Mm, mm -hmm. was the first indication that something had gone wrong. And this, of course, is in the film. Uh, And so the first exorcism uh, is performed on the boy by a Roman Catholic priest by the name of Edward Hughes at Georgetown University hospitals. That's when Georgetown comes in. Um, And the boy apparently slipped one of his hands out of the restraints, broke a bedspring from under the mattress, and used it to slash the priest's arm, thus stopping the exorcism short. The family then went to St. Louis University, and they brought back two priests to their home, Raymond J. Bishop and William S. Baldern. Uh, They observed the shaking bed, apparently flying objects, a guttural voice from the child, and his hatred of anything religiously sacred. Another exorcism is then performed by Baldern at the Alexian Brothers Hospital in South St. Louis, Missouri, along with another two priests named Walter Halloran and William Van Rue. Now, Halloran observed words such as evil and hell and other marks appearing on the boy's body along with the shaking bed. Roland... Apparently, the, the the possessed boy broke Halloran's nose during the whole thing as well. So he's got blood all over himself. He's you know he's wielding the cross. And it's doing important all that to, stuff. to note that like in this story of like weird Americana, there is a family at the center of it, and they are suffering incredibly as their child is is behaving in a way that they just had no ability to comprehend. One more exorcism is performed, and apparently after that. The boy ends up just going on to lead a normal life. He ends up getting a job at NASA. Oh, no shit. Yeah. That's kind of fun. Um, he hates religion that much <laughs> that he, he has to, to build her. a rocket to punch <laughs> the face of Jesus. <laughs> so studies later came out that Robbie was just a deeply disturbed boy, a disturbed bully who threw tantrums to get attention to get out of school. He mimicked Latin words that he heard clergymen say, you know, that mm. th- there was a whole thing. There was this one. He was bullied uh, extensively as a child. This one guy, I think his name's Oppenheimer. So he's, I'm just going to call him the naysay man. The naysay man uh, went and kind of found a lot of inconsistencies with the story. You know, the boy wasn't really from here. The boy, you know, this and that. The boy, the boy, the boy. Oh, the boy. You know what I mean? But But, uh, a young writer named Bill Blatty, who was obviously this, uh, the timing works out that uh, 
Bill Blatty was at Georgetown University, a Jesuit college. And mm-hmm. so the news of this event had like gone out. And during like uh, theology classes, the priest would be like, oh, you know, you make fun of this now. But even in Maryland, as we speak, there's a boy possessed by the devil. Blatty said of all of this story with the exorcism of Roland Doe. The 1949 case was the novel's inspiration. The jump-starting electrical jolt being the last line of my first letter from the exorcist in that case. The Jesuit priest, Father William Bowdern, after informing me that he was bound by the boy's family to total confidentiality, he ended, I can tell you this. The case I was involved in was the real thing. I had no doubt about it then, and I have no doubt about it now. The words charged me with the confidence to write about possession with the heat of conviction, and that is so what makes it so powerful. So let's talk about William Bill Blatty. I always want to do this. Um, Bill Friedkin, Bill Blatty, two cool guys ha. that want to just really tell the story of a of an ugly girl. Reminds me of the uh, SNL skit, Bill Brasky. You know where they're <laughs> yeah, talking yeah. about him? Uh, Bill Blatty. Um, so Bill William Peter Blatty was born and raised in NYC by his, get this, deeply devout Catholic mother, Mary. She was niece to a bishop who divorced from his father uh, a cloth cutter named Peter Blatty when William was a toddler. Now, he always uh, referred to how he was raised as a comfortable destitution as his mother's money came from the peddling of homemade quince jelly on the streets of New York. I don't oh, know come what quince on. You ever jelly had some- is. Actually, that's very weird. My uh, my name on uh, Epic Games Launcher is Quince Paste. Uh-oh. I think you're about to get murdered tonight in your sleep. Nah, it's fine. I'm too fat to die. Uh, he, uh, it's too round. I'm too big. Death can't catch me. <laughs> um, so he moved, apparently he moved 28 different times in his childhood due to non-payment of rent. Uh, and he attended Brooklyn Preparatory and graduated valedictorian in 1946, later attending Georgetown University on a scholarship, earning his bachelor's degree in English in 1950. He then enlisted in the U.S. Air Force, later becoming the head of the policy branch of its psychological warfare division, which is super Ooh. cool and totally feeds into the exorcist. He was using radio and leaflet propaganda to undermine the German soldier's morale. And who knows, maybe he learned a little something about subliminal messaging and some things about how to communicate, you know, terror and fear, instill it into the hearts and minds of people. Hey, uh, what fucks with people the hardest? (laughs) Uh, So while there, Blatty had this to say, I got a great deal of press attention focused on a staff psychiatrist who believed that horror films were a form of self-administered therapy for teenagers. He theorized that while watching a well-crafted fright film, all of their unconscious but still very real childhood fears of vampires, werewolves, and the like rise into consciousness via their suspension of disbelief. Their jaws drop, their eyes widen, see? They think for a moment, they're real, they exist. Then the credits roll, the lights come up, and the teenagers inwardly smile and sigh with relief, thinking, hey, it was only a movie. To quote the exorcist, Lieutenant Kinderman, I mention it only in passing. Uh, I thought that was a killer quote and so interesting that he learned that in this psychological warfare division. I mean, I do consider the exorcist to be, in a way, a bit of psychological warfare. Mm-hmm. It's it's very dreamlike. It, it moves at a pace that is very surreal. It has several bizarre shots in it. Uh, I... I, I um, uh, was watching it earlier today, and you just notice the quality of it is so... It's it's doom and gloom, but it's also just has this 
intangible aspect to it. Like it always goes places. You're like, why is this weird shot here? What what is going on? Why what what are these priests doing over here? You know, like it just bizarre, bizarre from the very beginning. And it's like that this weird mystery. guy in the motorcycle when uh, <laughs> when, when uh, the mom is going on her way to work. Yeah. The other thing, and and to talk about pacing, this is where this might come in a little bit more. The other thing I love about this guy, he started off writing humor prose. He was a comedy writer. Oh, he uh, famous. I don't know if you'll get into this, but uh, he ended up when he ended up working in Hollywood. He uh, uh, ended up doing a script for famous uh, producer, movie star, muckety muck, golden age guy Blake Edwards. Of course, I was going to talk about oh. Blake Edwards. Absolutely, but before we even get to that. He he got to pursue his dream. Like I remember, I had to make, take a big leap, leap of faith from like uh, leaving my insurance job, right, to mm-hmm. do all of this. This fucker ends up just getting on Groucho, the Groucho Marx quiz show. You bet your life and winning ten thousand dollars, which is exactly what he needed to quit and pursue writing full time. Mm-hmm. It makes me mad. <laughs> well, maybe you should have fucking known anything. <laughs> I know, right? Jeopardy's right there waiting for you. Oh, my God. I do have a super scientist, very good friend, uh, Keith, who won uh, tens of thousands of dollars on Jeopardy, actually. Did quite well for himself. So why? I mean, you killed him and assumed his identity. Hashtag hustle. Hashtag get it done. I'll tell you why, because he's got two kids. All right. I can't get down with that. You're their dad now. <laughs> so, anyways, he um, he on the show he pretended to be a wealthy Arabian prince, prompting Groucho to say, "You're no more prince than I am because I have an Arabian horse and I know what they look like." <laughs> I'm sure nothing was racist. Nothing. When, and during the uh, during that episode, racism was actually invented in the late seventies <laughs> as a psyop. <laughs> Um, so anyways, he wrote several more comedy books uh, after that, which which got him a lot of critical notoriety, but very little sales. Um, it was uh, he did a comic spoof of, of the Cold War called John Goldfarb, Please Come Home and Twinkle Twinkle Killer Kane, which would later actually become a serious film called Ninth Configuration, which he directed himself, I believe. And um, uh, the book, uh, it actually is set in an insane asylum for military personnel, but the book is much more farcical. And then it just gets, it, it kind of devolves into some psychological bizarreness. But anyways, that made me want to kind of read that one. But uh, at this point, that is when he starts working for, with director Blake Edwards, which is where he cut his teeth in the screenwriting um, biz. He ended up uh, doing, well, Blake Edwards is best known for Breakfast at Tiffany's and um, the Pink Panther series. And with Edwards, he got a screen screenwriting uh first screenwriting experience on comedies uh such as the second pink panther film entitled a shot in the dark blake Blake edwards did the pink panther films and a musical starring julie andrews and rock hudson called darling lily before he ended up writing his own comedy screenplays under the name bill bill blatty hey everybody it's me your whiskery wizard jake here once again to talk about this week's sponsor keeps imagine a world where male hair loss was optional where magic and and powerful sciences converged in order to create effective treatments that not only have been approved by the government but have been tested to work and now imagine stretch your mind to the greatest farthest reaches of your imagination that you can get those treatments for an affordable and easy to procure methodology What if I told you that this future, this magical alternate reality was in fact our own? 
That's right, it's Keeps. Keeps is designed for guys who want to stop their hair loss with their scientific and affordable approach. Managed entirely on Keeps.com, Keeps is the easiest way to stop hair loss before it's too late. If you're worried about going bald, there's actual options, actual proven treatments out there that will take the worry and anxiety out of it. But the catch is, the sooner you start these treatments, the better they work. And Keeps is the easiest, most direct way to get this process started. First of all, it really works. They offered the only two FDA-approved hair loss products that have been clinically proven to keep the hair you have. It's no BS, it's no crystals, these are actual medicines. It's completely safe. These are the generic versions of the medications that have been around for a while, and now Keeps just makes it cheaper and easier to get your hands on them. Now, getting started with Keeps is easy. Sign up takes less than five minutes. You just answer a few questions and take some photos. I did it on my phone. I did it in a taxi cab and a licensed doctor remotely reviewed the information and recommended the right treatment plan for me. I honestly, no doctor's appointment, nothing. It was the opposite of a hassle. If anything, the hassle of having to worry about this sort of thing is way heavier than actually going ahead and trying it out. Keeps offers generic versions of the only two FDA approved hair loss products out there. Uh, some of them you might've tried before, but you have never gotten them this easily or for this price for only 10 to $35 a month you can get your treatment started and now right now you right now listening to my voice can get your first month's treatment free that's a great deal that is an insane deal I honestly just truly cannot believe that such a deal exists and yet here we are there's no reason to put this off any longer right now you there with the internet enabled device with which you are listening to this program stop hair loss today the easy way with keeps all you have to do is go to keeps.com slash wizard that's k-e-e-p-s dot com slash wizard for a free month of treatment at keeps.com slash wizard that is a free month of treatment all you have to do is go to the very silly url keeps.com slash wizard keeps hair today hair tomorrow so uh there's actually a weird uh moment where Blake Edwards was looking for a director to uh, do a bit was basically a movie adaptation of one of his television projects. And uh, the script was written by Bill Blatty. Mm. And so uh, Blake Edwards invited uh, a bunch of directors to kind of like meet and see who he, you know, who he could get to do it cheaply, among which was a young uh, documentary uh, director called William Friedkin. Ah, that's and, uh, how they... Blake Edwards sat him down in his office while he was literally eating his breakfast, English muffin in his face, and he was like, so you want to do my picture? It's me, Blake Edwards. I'm a fucking big time golden age movie fucker. Um, <laughs> that's how they all talked, by the way. That's hey. how they all talked. Hey, you want to laugh at a dying child? It's me, Blake Edwards. I could probably help you with that. And... Uh, Blake Edwards asked Friedkin, what did you think of the script? And Friedkin, who was this, you know, new cinema, like, you know, auteur uh, generation who had no respect for the fucking old guys. This is apparently the quote. Uh, told him the script uh, sucked donkey balls <laughs> in front of Bill Blatty, who was there at the meeting. Wow. That's and amazing. That the the level of candor 
that Friedkin displayed, who like had no fear in his heart when he told this, uh, you know, this fucking guy that I'm sure Blatty, you know, this was his Hollywood boss was terrified of, uh, stuck with him and made him like basically put Friedkin always in his mind as a director with integrity. Ah. Um, Blake Edwards then like cursed him out and kicked Friedkin out, but uh, that was that was like an important moment where the two first met. Wow. That's that's I had I did not know that story whatsoever. Yeah. What I do know is after he was done writing these comedy screenplays, he decided to go back to prose, and that is when he starts working on The Exorcist. Blatty says the 1971 edition of The Exorcist was my first and only draft, and now I'm going to stop right now and go, holy fuck, that's insane. If you're a writer, the fact that that The Exorcist that he wrote back in 1971 was only a one draft is absurd to me I've never written like a I mean maybe a sketch every now and again I just wrote the one draft and didn't make a single change to it but that is bananas to write an entire book and have it just be one draft that's insane I can buy it if he was like if he was used to the turnaround of like old time Hollywood the well, kind it, of mechanical way it was also, that they approached screenwriting it, it kind of was the turnaround right he says at the time I had no choice books were for love and my income was totally derived from writing motion picture comedy screenplays but in 19 1969, movie comedies were out of both Vogue and popcorn sales, thus placing me in that state of financial desperation when comedy writers, as James James Thurber once wrote of it in his preface to a life, take to calling their home from their office or their office from their home, asking for themselves, and then collapsing in hard-breathing relief upon being told they weren't in. That is some old-school humor that I just, <laughs> I, I just, I don't know. Thus, when a week or so before completion of the novel, I received a high-paying offer to write a romantic screenplay for Paul Newman, I leaped at the chance, starting work on the screenplay mere moments after turning in the novel to Harper and Rowe and forgoing the writing of a second draft. He would actually later rewrite it at the age of 83 he rewrote his own book which rarely happens um by the way like novelists rarely go back and rewrite their own book years and years later but it actually there's actually a weird parallel uh that maybe we'll get to later uh-huh. but uh, the versions of uh the exorcist that came out on film uh, on the DVD. version not only the versions of the exorcist but uh the album tubular bells yes. mike oldfield has reworked and reconfigured and remastered and re Uh, like he's made an all digital version because he's forever chasing this ideal version of his album that he just will never, or I think he died, but (laughs) he had never stopped, uh, trying to, trying to recreate. Well, uh, Blatty, he, uh, edited dialogue and added a new scene actually. Um, so he also- My gold feels alive. Never mind. Good job. (laughs) Way, Way to, way to breathe. So you can still get that version he's been searching for. Uh, this, he's probably, you know, slower at this point, probably unable to, you know, make it better than he's made it before. I mean, no, man, more digital synths. <laughs> Look, I can play the revolver. You know what I mean? That's probably where he's at right now. No, that's Friedkin who had the revolver. That is Friedkin who had the revolver. We'll get there. Refute, he, he refutes it being based on the 1949 case. By the way, he merely says it was an inspiration. Uh, I love this quote uh, that Blatty has about what makes something scary. He says, you're asking me? When I was writing the novel, I thought of it as a supernatural detective story, and to this day I cannot recall having a conscious intention to terrifying anybody, which you may take, I suppose, as an admission of failure on an almost stupefying scale. As for myself, I sleep with a variety of nightlights. Please address this question to the master of terror, Stephen King. So he wasn't even necessarily, in his head, writing a horror book. Mm -hmm. He was just writing, you know... 
his best uh, interpretation, right? And again, uh, I think that that's one of our bedrock foundations for this episode, one of the underlying things. It's it's even back then, he was just writing as real as he could make it. He wasn't trying to make it scary. He was just making it feel as real as possible, which makes it so much more fucking scary. I mean, within the Catholic doctrine, within the, the, the Roman rites, there is, I drink a, I pounded a seltzer, now I'm all burpy, I'm burpy. so sorry. Burp on the thing, it's oh. fun. Yeah. Oh, yay. Um, <laughs> the, uh, you know, there are there are key uh, criteria for what constitutes a uh, demonic possession. Uh, stuff like unnatural strength or physical feats, uh, speaking in tongues, mm-hmm. uh, uh, levitation, like, you know, stuff moving around the room. Like, the reason why the exorcism case in Maryland and the exorcism and the exorcist book uh, have a lot of parallels is because like there are rules to what constitutes a possession within Catholic doctrine. Uh, so, and, and here's when we kind of get more of the basis in the reality. The protagonist, father Lancaster Marin was actually based on British archeologist, Gerald Lancaster Harding. And he was the director of the De- department of antiques of Jordan from 1936 to 1956. He was essentially religious Indiana Jones. Mm. Uh, he started out as an Egyptologist fascinated by hieroglyphics and while he was in Jordan he learned of the existence of the Dead Sea Scrolls from an archaeologist uh, archaeological journal and set about finding them as they were in his jurisdiction in 1948 now Blatty actually met Harding at some point and stated he was the physical model in my mind when I created the character of Marin whose first name please note is Lancaster so uh, this book which I feel like he pulled all of his Georgetown education, all of his past experience. And his screenwriting, you know, knowledge. And he did that thing where, like, you hear about musicians doing some song, some songs you labor over for months, but some just come right to you within 15 minutes you write it down and they become these classic hits and I feel like Exorcist was like that for him he just fucking wrote it out and sent it out and that was it you know and that usually isn't the way it goes down but man this book crushed the New York Times bestseller list for 17 weeks and remained on the list for 57 weeks selling more than 13 million copies in the US alone it it, it just totally blew his the doors off of his career and he, was, he just became a gigantic gigantic success as a novelist but also he's got this screenplay ability now and he can adapt you know anything now he's been writing screenplays in Hollywood this whole time unknowingly preparing himself for this moment where he could take his own work and perfectly adapt it to a screenplay to to make for one of the greatest horror films of all time well not so perfectly oh yeah I mean Friedkin are we? We'll, we'll get to. We'll get well, to. Friedkin. Let's talk about Friedkin. That's what I'm. That's what I'm on to next. William Friedkin, Friedkin, the director of The Exorcist. Mm-hmm. Born in Chicago to Jewish immigrants from Ukraine who fled during a very violent anti-Jewish pogrom or riot in 1903, which is, I think, kind of fascinating, uh, seeing, seeing as what what uh, kind of uh, material we're working with here. He was not the best student. Freakin was a pretty serious basketball player as well as an avid moviegoer in high school and beyond. He was and also he, a bit of a prankster. And, a, a, and a, with a bit of a rage issue. 
He would uh, <laughs> dress in a black executioner's hood what? and had a habit of bursting into uh, full classrooms, screaming and then throwing erasers and pencils around. Oh, I thought I didn't really like this guy. I think I actually love this guy now. <laughs> I think I love this dude. I think I want to sit down um, with him. And you know what I mean? Yeah. The things that got me doing research about Friedkin was uh, he's definitely success driven. He is super schmoozy, super aware of PR and marketing, uh, really just like uncompromising in getting the shots and getting what he needs uh, from his performers. A commentary that I'd seen a bunch was that he resented his dad who had like basically uh, no get up and go hustle (laughs) and had kind of doomed his family to a life of like mediocrity and like sub poverty. Mm, mm. During his movie watching, he's watching uh, especially Citizen Kane had a giant influence on him. (laughs) Which, of course, but I will say this about Citizen Kane. I feel like when I was a kid, it looked like this really boring, like, oh, snooty person movie. But Citizen Kane is legit and extremely entertaining and incredibly well done in every aspect. I always thought it would be a snooze fest, but when I actually sat down to watch that movie, I was just... And every time I sit down to watch that movie, I am just gripped from beginning to end. It really is a phenomenal film. I actually heard an anecdote (laughs) where Friedkin, as a very young child, was taken to his first movie uh, by his mom in downtown Chicago. And uh, the noise, just the sheer amount of like loud noises in the theater Mm. terrified him. And he like had to leave. He forced his mom to leave the theater with him. Oh, wow. Which is ironic considering the uh, 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 visceral reaction his movie would end up getting. Right. I I, kind of I get that, though, because there's so many things that like The Exorcist itself that like I was opposed to at first upon first viewing and they end up becoming like my favorite thing ever. There's something about something that can affect you on that level mm-hmm. uh, that, that later on you, you just you become obsessed with it, you know, that it could have that effect on you. Um, so he also loves psychological thrillers such as Le Diabolique, The Wages of War and Psycho, which apparently he reviewed repeatedly, which makes a lot of sense. How to get into the head, how to manipulate. And it's kind of interesting because he would do work for uh, Hitchcock uh, and very soon in our story here. He gets a job out of high school in the mailroom at WGN-TV, an independent television studio in Chicago. And with two within two years, at the age of 18, was directing live TV shows and documentaries, one of which got a ton of acclaim and kind of jump-started his career a little bit even more. The 1962 doc called The People vs. Paul Crump about a man on death row, and he helped him get him off death row. And that's unfortunate because later in life, he now feels that he was indeed guilty which is pretty fucked up uh, for research for that um i believe he watched a man die in the electric chair Woo. yeah that is brutal he went on to direct one of the last episodes of the alfred hitchcock hour which is by the way rules and everybody should go look up uh the alfred hitchcock hour it's so there's so many good uh shorts that came out of that in 1965 he did um although a, uh hitchcock uh had a brief interaction with him where he uh berated him for not wearing a tie fantastic that sounds that sounds about right that sounds about right. Later, I believe at the Oscar party <laughs> for The Exorcist, <laughs> uh, he actually screamed at Hitchcock, hey, I finally got that tie. <laughs> That's fantastic. By the way, wear a tie while he was directing? Yeah, fucking oh, <laughs> be professional. Dude, we got to do a Hitchcock episode. I mean, in behind the scenes uh, footage, Friedkin was often seen wearing a suit on set. Uh-huh. That's that. That's really? Yeah. What? There's That's a ton so of behind the scenes footage from the Yes, movie. there is a whole documentary. 
So anyways, in 1965, he did this short called Off Season about a couple of disgruntled ex-cops fighting over a woman. Uh, And apparently that did pretty well. He also made some smaller art films around this time. The Boys in the Band, The Birthday Party. But he he really wanted to be less associated with art house films and more associated with serious drama films dealing with America at that time. This is the state of America at the time as well. You've got Vietnam. You've got the sexual revolution. You've got Watergate. Um, it ain't me. It ain't me. I know for you know that song was playing all the time. You know what LSD, I mean? LSD, consensual sex, the occult, <laughs> all that good stuff happening. Uh, really, really, just becoming very uh, exposed, becoming very talked about, and he really wanted to break things like that down and do some really raw, rugged stuff. And that is why in 1971 he comes out with what. You need to watch, everyone needs to watch The French Connection. Mm-hmm. The French Connection is fucking awesome. And I I forgot that he did The French Connection mm. before The Exorcist. Watch that movie. It is so, I want to watch it again now uh, after like doing this uh, research for this episode. It's so fucking, the grittiness of the city, um, just the whole, you know, it's about, by the way, it's 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 set in, and in, in this feeds into what he was doing before. It's a documentary style shot. shot. It had this gritty feel, which was totally different um, or, or pretty different for Hollywood in that time. It, you know, Gene Hackman's Popeye character was not as glamorous as like a noir detective. Exactly. Everything was just gritty, dirty, and it was gripping as hell. It is it is just the sequences are, are so thrilling. I mean, the, they shot a fucking car chase scene without a person. Permits in yeah. the middle of New York. Fucking like, insane. Uh, and yeah, it's Gene Hackman. It's about two New York Police Department detectives chasing after a French heroin smuggler. It's fucking so good. I'm cursing so much right now because I'm that enthusiastic about it. Also how contains good it contains like a really yeah, it has a lot of the freaking hallmarks, which is like uh static or I'm not, I don't know, not static, but like yeah, very straight ahead documentary style shot setups. Uh, moments of just kind of mundanity then interspersed with like huge punchy moments and more importantly uh, kind of like relatable uh, stock character types that we're supposed to like kind of f- be familiar with as movie watchers who then get put in this situation so over their head and yes. so above their pay grade that they are left completely shattered by yeah, the Yeah, I love it. It's like Chinatown. It's like, yeah. and, and this was an advent. This really was very popular at the time. This was like an advent uh, in, in, in the Hollywood process of like, oh, we, the people want stuff like Taxi Driver. The people want stuff like, the, you know, it's almost like Art House invaded Hollywood, yeah. essentially, is, is the, the, finally, I'm finding the words to describe it. So Warner Brothers at this time, after, the, after that movie came out, we're in the early 70s now, and Warner Brothers really wants to, you know, take this screenplay that Blatty wrote and, and get a director to make The Exorcist. There were many directors that were approached. Uh, Arthur Penn, who did Bonnie and Clyde. Stanley Kubrick, who I don't think needs intro, uh, 2001 Space Odyssey, Gligar Garnge. Uh, Mike Nichols, the uh, who did The Odd Couple. They all turn it down. 
Uh, there was also uh, Mark Rydell who was signed on. He did on Golden Pond and For the Boys and a bunch of like beloved Oscar films. He was hired uh, at first to direct, but then William Peter Blatty, Bill Blatty, insisted it be Friedkin. He wanted the same grit and pacing that he saw in The French Connection and had a huge fight with the studio over this. And like every single story almost that we tell on this show, he stuck to his guns and the studio folded and he got his way and that's why why the movie's so damn good uh and and you know i love blatty's instincts in all of this too I, it's so great you know that he knew what he wanted he got it exactly you know he got exactly the situation he wanted but this is when the real trouble begins and i think a lot by the way a lot of these other directors turned down this whole role because of the obvious problem that is like spectacularly done in this film that how is this little girl going to carry this movie on her shoulders? You know, um, it's a tough, tough role for someone of that age to pull off. And uh, so I think a lot of people balked at it, didn't think it could be done. So here we go. Here's the casting uh, section scenario within the story of the exorcist. They initially went with uh, they were they were go they were looking at a few different little girls to play the role. There was Denise Nickerson who played Violet Beauregard in Willy Wonka, who was up for the role, but her family ended up declining due to the content. Other actresses uh, were looked at, uh, but they were either too known for other things to get the job. One was even hospitalized before uh, and therefore taken out of the running. And I, I, that's another thing, again, talking about the realness of this film. I love that they ended up going with Linda Blair, who was a relative unknown. She was like a child. Like she was a very busy uh, child model. Right, like, you know, catalogs, uh, fucking, you know, just. But, but wasn't Sinan? I mean, it wasn't like Violet Beauregard. You know yeah. what I mean? Wasn't like seen in that way. And but Linda, it's important that, like, from day one, she had to be uncomfortable in front of a camera for yeah. a long time. Oh my god! And we'll talk. Oh god, we'll talk. The about fact that, that she wasn't an actress, quote unquote, and that she didn't like know better to be like, hey, this is untenable and terrible, <laughs> really did help the movie. Yes, it did. Linda Blair's agency didn't send her out for the part, actually, at first, but her mother took her to meet with Warner's casting department and Friedkin, and um, and she ended up getting the role. Thank God the studio didn't get what they wanted for Father Marin. They wanted Marlon Brando, which I think would have been a misstep. <laughs> Friedkin rejected that so as not to make the film a Brando movie. Also, I don't know how old he was at that time, but I think he we, we were at full-on crazy brando at that point uh i mean age doesn't quite matter as like it's you know max von sidow uh sit out and you know whatever uh he was only 40 when they yes. filmed this it's all old man makeup yes uh and and uh done by shit i'll i'll dick say smith. his name later dick smith crushed his makeup job because most people didn't notice that he was you Not know wearing in makeup heavier than the uh, Lin uh linda blair's it yeah. was so intense for the old man makeup i it was so well done that like i immediately recognized max von sidow because I've only known Max von Sydow as an old as ass an man old, yeah. in everything. Exactly, uh, and uh, he, you know, Max, he's been in so many things. Uh, I love my favorite, definitely. If you haven't seen this one yet, Ingmar Bergman's The Seventh Seal. You've actually watched that. Oh, what? Have you not? I don't know. There's chess and the and death. That's all I know. I went through a big Bergman phase. I uh. love I love Ingmar Bergman's films. He's phenomenal. Um, 
yeah, I love all all of that kind of stuff. Anything that's weird. Uh, so also we had Jack Nicholson up for the part uh, for Father Karras, but freaking met a man named Jason Miller after seeing a play in New York called the That Championship Season that Miller wrote, but he wasn't even in, and later uh, would win a Pulitzer Prize for. And Jason Miller had never acted in a film before, and he was signed on to play uh, the, the play play the role. And that again, because we are not familiar with these people as much. I mean, the mother, of course, Ellen Burstyn. I think she was pretty oh, familiar at the time. Actual huge movies. But a lot of these people not being very well known makes it even feel even more real, even more terrifying. But to her credit, too, Ellen Burstyn is playing a famous actress in yeah. the film, so that even works. Ellen Burstyn gets the part instead of Jane Fonda, Audrey Hepburn, and Bancroft and Shirley MacLaine. I read somewhere Audrey Hepburn would only do it if it was shot in Rome. <laughs> so they were like, fuck you. Uh, they were all up for the part of Chris, but it was Ellen Burstyn who got the part. And because, and listen to this one, all you actors out there, because she called freaking on the, on the phone and point blank told him she was going to play the role. And sometimes, unfortunately, you have to do crazy bullshit like that. I'm sure 10 times it won't work. And you'll just feel like an idiot. But that one time, they'll go with it. Kind of reminds me. And then me, freaking repaid that tenacity and sass yes. by uh, snapping her coccyx bone in half. Destroying her back for the rest of her life, <laughs> actually. That scene where uh, Regan, Regan throws uh, her mom across the room and she like lands by the window and screams bloody murder. Uh, it's her actually screaming bloody murder because her fucking shit got wrecked. At least they used that take, you know? Well, well they cut away off? before she screamed, turn off that fucking camera. You're not using this <laughs> that's amazing because they were still like of course she's like right. why is no one calling a fucking ambulance right right of course exactly now the voice the mm. voice originally they just tried to deepen uh linda blair's voice but they, it just wasn't quite working for certain scenes and they ended up going with legendary radio actress mercedes mccambridge mercedes for the role. mccambridge <laughs> Uh, she did a bunch, a bunch of radio stuff. She was also what was it? All the King's Men was it? I believe she got. Uh, I, she was an established actress. She, she was, did. Yeah. yeah, she's done a lot of stuff. And Father Joseph Dyer, who played a, uh, was played by a real life Jesuit and assistant professor. Father Karras's friend, the one who does the last rites at the yes. end. Yes, he's he he's an actual Jesuit and assistant professor of theology at Fordham, named William O'Malley, and he would later uh, refer to his role as. As uh, in the film, he would he would refer to it as the pornographic horror film he once did. Um, now, thing about uh, Father William O'Malley is that he was not an actor. He was kind of, uh, you know, he had that good like white guy trustworthy face um, in the in the. I saw. I think I saw the director's cut. I'm not sure. Was uh, the spider walk in it? There was the spider walk so and, the, and the detective uh, and Father Dyer had that like chummy moment at the end. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, yeah, that's so it's be. like kind of establishes that like. Like Father Karras's legacy lives on through him. Uh, he ends up having a role in uh, The Exorcist Three, I believe. Anyway, hmm. during the scene where uh, spoilers, I guess, uh, on the steps where Father Karras is giving the last rites, uh, they were shooting this at like three a.m. and Freakin was not getting a good take out of this guy. He was just like <laughs> performing the last rites because it's the one part as a as a priest that he knows how to do like stone faced and like professionally, and so uh, Freakin. Um, stands him up and says, like, okay, do you trust me? And uh, Father O'Malley is like, uh, yeah, of course. And Friedkin 
open palm just slaps the shit out of him right across the face, knocking him to the ground. They start filming. And so that shaky hand that you see as he's like holding back tears over what should be his friend is actually like, I just got the fucking shit slapped out of me. <laughs> I love it. Friedkin was a fucking monster would, on this he, set. We mentioned his revolver, but he would he would fire a gun off to startle actors right before a scene where they had to be startled looking he was he was apparently a rage monster jason miller had to get up in his face and like scream at him like i'm an actor you fucking idiot that's why you hired me why are you shooting a gun you psychopath hey everybody holden here these days you can practically get everything on demand like this podcast listen whenever you want when it's convenient for you but did you know you can even get postage on demand all you need is stamps.com these days with Patreon and my Twitch stream through which I mail out t-shirts and paintings and all kinds of stuff to people like you, Stamps.com makes my life a whole lot easier. I don't even have to leave my apartment, which as you know, I hate doing. With Stamps.com, you can access all the services of the post office right from your desk, buy and print real U.S. postage for any letter or any package, and it's all available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Just click, print, mail, and you're done. Stamps.com will even send you a digital scale so you can weigh that t-shirt or painting and make sure you're using the correct amount of postage. It works like a charm. I've never had anything sent back to me using this service. And right now, if you use Wizard for this special offer, you can get a four-week trial which includes postage and a digital scale. Don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage and type in Wizard. That's Stamps.com and enter Wizard. Now, on to the show. Uh, he was um, putting Linda Blair through all sorts of, like, you know, just psychotic setups. Um, uh, yeah, the interiors, um, which were mostly shot in NYC, by the way, even though it was set in D.C., um, the bedroom set was refrigerated to get the icy breath in the exorcism scenes, and they brought it so low at one point that a thin layer of snow fell onto the set one morning. Blair, only in a nightgown for all this shit, completely tortured she to this day cannot stand being cold uh, like lifelong effects the same like the the breaking the, the you know fucking up the back of uh ellen burston i mean li- this this had a lifelong effect on on the performers the, um like when you say refrigerated said oh they blasted the air conditioner but to get that like breath effect uh you have to realize that air conditioners actually suck out the moisture from a room so it had to be like minus zero fahrenheit like in the minus 20s when they actually started filming then they would have to cut because the lights would warm up the room too much and they would have to refreeze the set this was like uh arduous they were doing all sorts of setups you know uh it's We shouldn't get to, like, but the final battle is a just nightmare of practical effects setups. Um, Even without all the filming and all the crazy shit, uh, Linda Blair had to, like, sit down and get almost every part of her body individually, like, molded. You know, like, uh, Mm -hmm. if you ever had braces, you know how annoying it was where you got, like, the algae mold on your teeth? Dude, I had the, oh, my God. I had such weird memories of going to the orthodontist the other day. It was so... So Awful. imagine that, but across your entire back, because Ugh. the fucking rig that snaps her around the bed had to be like perfectly constricted. Uh, oh, also, Linda Blair mold. fucked up her back because the yep, ties same. on the uh, back rig came loose, and so while she was like supposed to be like supported, instead the 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 machine or not the machine, um, the the levers and pulleys that a bunch of like 
burly fucking stagehands were shaking her back and forth, uh, like was just cracking her against her fucking. It's just nuts. Uh, the the famous falling down the stairs sequence. Uh, those exorcist stairs were filmed at Georgetown. They uh, were padded with a half inch thick rubber, and they actually added a false front extension to the house so that they could cheat and get the shot. The stuntman did the stunt twice, and students charged people five dollars to wa- uh, each to watch the stunt from the rooftops. Mm. That's pretty savvy of them. Uh, you also have what? Uh, here's some other stuff. The spider walk scene was performed by stunt woman Ann Miles and was deleted just before the film was released as Freakenfeld had appeared too early in the movie but Blatty objected to this I agree with Blatty I think I, I, I my exorcist has the spider walk in it I love that moment I think it's phenomenal it was it added was in the 2000 director's because I feel like even just growing up because you know a lot of these scenes a lot of these quotes kind of bleed their way into pop culture I feel like the spider walk was always part of it yeah I know right it I feels like understand. it was always there yeah. yeah it's very weird that that was added like in a later cut I honestly don't it's such maybe a, it's, it was used in a trailer it's such a memorable scene maybe it was just a- a- added you know scenes or something to like special edition stuff that and that's why people People saw it. The classic arrival scene of Father Marin was shot on Marks von Sydow's first day of work, and it was based off of a painting by Rene Magritte called Empire of Light, which is the depiction of a house with a daytime sky above it, but a nighttime street lit by just a single street lamp. I uh, recommend checking out that painting. There's three different versions of it that he did. And it's really cool. It's I a, love it's, Magritte paintings. I had an art. I had like a coffee table book of it for the long. Oh, really? Because it's all visual jokes. Okay, yeah. It's all everything has a punch and a twist, and it's huh. just like they're just entertaining images. They many of the exteriors and interiors, as I said, were shot at Georgetown. And this includes the defilement of the Virgin Mary statue that was uh, that was done there. Um, a ton of other stuff. We already said that I've talked about the medical scenes. Um, uh, the well, the archaeology scenes were shot in a uh, in an actual dig site near Mosul. Uh, yes. That was the that uh, was famously uh, the reason why it was a famous archaeological site because it was the site of a uh, uh, ancient massacre. Yes, <laughs> in which uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of people were beheaded in a horrifying uh, display of cruelty. I just think they just got it so close to the reality in in so many weird ways that that film has a fucking energy, man. It's so scary. The uh, the. <laughs> Just the uh, a lot of people wanted to cut that initial uh, archaeology scene, the Max von Sydow, uh, um, yeah, uh, introduction. You know, where he's sipping the tea, where he's like uncovering all this stuff. Uh, but it sets so much of the tone of the movie. The idea that like th- that basically these ancient powers that we've been disconnected from from Amer- in America are still alive and very real. That like. That it's not that we outgrew the danger, that the danger was always still there. It was very powerful. Um, the guy who did the soundtrack for Citizen Kane uh, demanded that Friedkin cut the uh, cut that part. He said it was bullshit, and uh, he wouldn't yes. do the movie unless he cut it. Apparently, he threw it away, the tapes away in the parking lot. <laughs> of uh, yeah, of of the of the studio. Yeah, that was Lalo uh, Schifrin. Sounds I believe, right. I believe he was hired for it. Yeah, he uh, ended up going with modern classical compositions, uh, most notably Tubular Bells by English prog rock musician Mike Oldfield. So that was the most well-known song. Na, 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 yeah. na, na. And, you know, you, we say it's Tubular Bells, but it's really the first couple of seconds of Tubular Bells because ah. Tubular Bells uh, is this kind of 
unprecedented accomplishment in uh, music, at, in prog music at the time. Mm. Uh, Mike Oldfield was 19 years old at the time and was making it like on his own on hacked tape decks so that, you know, instead of like a four track, he could like overdub hundreds upon hundreds of musical parts. Like the original recording of Tubular Bells, except for a few scattered instruments here and there, are were literally him just tooling around. Wow. And it would have been lost to time if it wasn't for the fact that he managed to get his home recordings in front of a uh, young Richard Branson, ah, uh, whose uh, fledgling music studio he was, uh, Oldfield was working for, it blew up. It's like this forty-minute opus that goes places. It like it's it's it alternates between like uh, show tunes to ye old like Tolkien-esque Hobbit music <laughs> to fucking hardcore metal. It is insane, and it has this brilliant part where. They literally grabbed like the drunk vocalist from a psychedelic band who was also in the studio, and he like announces like, and now the Spanish guitar. By the and way, tubular bells. <laughs> it's so like, honestly, if you just want to chill out, like find a really good copy of that of that album and just let it flow through you. It is bonkers. You can actually see a live recording of it, um, like uh, filmed in the seventies. But it's there's tubular battles is its own story. It's yeah. his own crazy thing that Friedkin just kind of grabbed. Uh, also, yeah, he kind of hates that it's even uh, associated with The Exorcist, right? Well, oh, he uh, needed a fucking creepy theme and didn't want to pay anybody. Or, or old old Oldfield does. Oh Oldfield yeah, of course, because it. I mean, it was its own phenomenon in England, and right. then it, in America, it's on oh, pure it's moods yeah, as yeah. The Exorcist theme. Uh, also, another keeping it in the real fact. I love as many of these as I can find. Karras's, the interior of Father Karras's room at Georgetown was a meticulous reconstruction, weirdly enough, of an actual Georgetown theology professor's room named Father Thomas M. King. They took a photo of it, and they just piece by piece completely meticulously recreated the interior of the room. And this included a poster of Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. I'm sure I got that wrong, who Father Marin was loosely based off of. And was he was a paleontologist and a geologist as well as a theologian, as well as the other one I mentioned who found the Dead Sea Scrolls. Speaking of, uh, once again about the archaeology scene, uh, did you mention how they got permission to no. uh, film? Well, uh, like I said, the scene uh, was shot in a uh, dig near Mosul, Iraq, and they needed special permission from the Saddam Hussein government. And uh, their only stipulation in return for uh, letting them film was that... Um, Friedkin had to arrange for someone on their crew to come over to the Iraqi uh, government's uh, state film department and teach them how to make stage blood. Oh. For whatever reason, Saddam Hussein needed lots of fake blood for. Interesting. Death has touched this movie. Dude, all over it. Speaking of uh, sounding like death, Mercedes McCambridge's performance is also mortifying. Mm. She swallowed raw eggs, chain-smoked, and drank whiskey to get the specific vocalization. She was apparently an, uh, a sober alcoholic who had to have her priest be present to counsel her during the pr uh, process and so that she wouldn't like go back to the bottle at, when it was all done. And Friedkin personally tied her down with bedsheets yes. to a chair to get that of like that real struggle sound. She uh, Friedkin says of the performance, to this day, the memory of that, those sessions still terrify him the, just the whole thing that they did just it, it sounded like they just went a step too far like everything else in this movie um yeah 
and then the whole set was cursed. So let's talk about that fucking crazy bullshit. Well, we can talk. I mean, the fact is that the filming took a while. It was about like a year. And around that time, with that many people involved, there's going to be just some tragedies. There's going to be accidents. Uh, there's also just going to be weird people associated with it. In the hospital test scene, there's a bearded man assisting the doctor, played by an x-ray technician named Paul Bateson. This guy was later convicted of the murder of a film critic and sentenced to 20 years in prison. But he also bragged slash confessed to the murders of six men that he would pick up in gay bars, have sex with, then dismember and put them into plastic bags for fun around 1977 and 1978. Well, uh, apparently... Uh, he never was officially charged for these murders, even though the investigators involved believe wholeheartedly that he was definitely responsible for them. And he's released from prison in 2004. Good for him. Yeah, he's Good just behavior. around. Yeah. <laughs> also, um, Linda Blair. Uh, well, this is a little side effect from the film. Linda Blair had to have bodyguards protecting her for six months after the release of the film due to death threats from religious nutbags believing the film to be uh, something that glorified Satan. Oh, also, a bird flew into a circuit box and burned down the set uh, used as the home of Regan McNeil. Mm-hmm. Uh, Regan McNeil just as shooting began in 1972, and only one room remained completely untouched from the fire. Do you know which room that was? Uh, uh, probably like the kitchen. <laughs> nope. The the bedroom where they shot the actual exorcism scenes or where they were going to. That is actually apparently what set production back real bad. There were nine deaths that happened around the film's production. I don't have them all here. I had a hard time finding all of them, but... They're in one of the documentaries, Ellen Burstyn just kind of rattles them off. like Literally going as far as being like, there was a black guy, I think a security guard, he oh, croaked. Oh, my like, God. The, uh, the So there's the actors, Jack McGorwin, who plays Burke Dennings, who is the The baby, guy who dies. The guy who dies, the, the who's babysitting, and he dies. And then Vasiliki Maliaros, who plays Karis's mother, who also dies dies in the movie. They both died shortly after the film wrapped shooting. Um, Linda Blair and Max von Sydow both lost family members during production. Jason Miller's son, a toddler, was hit and nearly killed by a motorcycle. Do we know if that was Jason Patrick? Because Jason Patrick is the son of... Oh, I don't know. Can we imagine a world where because of The Exorcist we didn't get Speed 2 cruise control? Jesus. God. Also, which I forgot to write this down, but I'm pretty sure I have this right. If I have this wrong, don't kill me. But I'm pretty sure Mercedes McCambridge's son, after the film was this done. This was years afterwards, but you, he, what you're about to say is very true. Murder-suicided his family? Mm-hmm. Man, it's almost as dark as uh, all dog goes If you're having financial difficulties, don't take it out on your family. Ugh. Your family are distinct people and not a reflection of your own male failings. Hey, don't kill your family, even if you're really mad. Just let your family be a family and kill yourself instead. Take it from me, <laughs> Billy the Moose. <laughs> don't kill your fu 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 family if you're having destructive thoughts or uh, any other uh, self-harm or just want to talk to somebody there are resources available and there's no shame in going uh towards them uh we support you and love you and maybe don't watch the exorcist i don't know uh don't watch the exorcist <laughs> it's so and so warner brothers 
used all of this 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 rumors going around about this cursed set. Oh, they used the fuck out of that to promote this film. And this is not new, and this is still happening today. I think it was The Conjuring that was it was going around. Someone died in the theater or whatever. You know, like it's always a you know a great way to publicize your movie. Like Alien had a lot of this too. Uh-huh. Uh huh. You know, uh, vomiting, people fainting. Uh, there's a uh, you can watch a clip on YouTube called the cultural impact of the exorcist that was like a hodgepodge of various local news reports and you know uh the uh, ushers you know back when ushers had to wear like little monkey suits uh talking about how they had smelling salts on them at all times uh there was even reports of a woman having a miscarriage in the middle of the movie Uh which i not to like not to you know that just happens. It's an unfortunate reality. I think of it life. was Blatty or Friedkin who was like, "Yeah, that was all pretty much bullshit." Um, by the way, I don't know. I, oh, I forget. Friedkin who was, st- was incredibly protective about the movie's uh, image. Uh-huh. He absolutely wanted to push for um, basically everything from the narrative about the movie being haunted to the narrative about Linda Blair as the new child star. Um, it actually hurt the movie severely when it came time for Oscar season and hurt Linda Blair's career because he purposefully uh, denied um, Mercedes 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 McCambridge. Uh, Mercedes McCambridge accosted him at the premiere for denying her a screen credit, ah. saying that actors suffer yes. so much. Yes. Um, and then the stunt double for uh, Linda Blair, who, although only appears in the movie for 28 uh, seconds, is a bunch of like the most iconic scenes. It's her face in the Captain Howdy makeup. Um, the yep. uh, pea soup vomit is actually her wearing a Linda Blair mask with the vomit rig inside of it, mm. um, which it blew my mind how they actually did that. Um, there's they did you, did you see that in the documentary? No. It's, um What? So there were two flat tubes that went along the back of the head and along the cheeks, leading into a circular opening that went inside the mouth. So like it's this narrow, like narrow channel, but like you can with enough force, you can get the oatmeal and green pea soup out quickly. And then they put a latex mask, which whoever. Yeah, we know who it was. It was uh, Dick. um, Yeah, it was a fucker. No, no, no. Dick Dick Smith. Which is the most made up name I've ever heard. (laughs) Uh, Dick Smith had these amazing molds, the same ones that uh, they used for the puppet for the head turnaround. Uh, They used that mold to create a latex Linda Blair mask. So you couldn't see any of the tubes that fed the thing. So all you so from seemingly out of nowhere, this gush of fucking. It's not like, uh, you know, how Saturday Night Live when they want to do vomit. Uh, They they do this tube in the wrist. Yeah, yeah. It's so so funny. Yeah, yeah. Um. It's like, you know, that's that was a huge fucking puzzle that they saw. Right, right. Uh, also, what, uh, in Rome, apparently lightning struck a church opposite a cinema in which moviegoers were viewing the film. Uh, a woman passed out and broke her jaw, uh, for which she, she sued the studio. They apparently, this was probably, they were probably hired by Warner Brothers, but the St. John's ambulance staff attended screenings in the UK uh, to make sure everybody was going to be okay. I mean, there okay. was a, there was a, a man in England, a, a cadet, uh, who after seeing the movie did uh, climb up a church pulpit in the middle of mass and light himself on fire. The CNI happens. Um, U.S. televangelist Billy Graham proclaimed the celluloid of the film to be itself cursed and uh, to not, you know, to not watch it. Um, also, I wanted to do a couple, uh, uh, mention a couple things. The I, Catholic Church famously didn't make a comment on it because mm. they knew that um, if they denied it. It would seem like a cover-up, and yeah. if they endorsed it, it would seem like they're trying to cash in on it. Right. 
Uh, the sound of the demons leaving Reagan's body was the sound of pigs being herded to slaughter. And this is apparently a reference to the story uh, in the New New Testament in which several demons are cast out of a man uh, by Jesus who transfers them into the bodies of pigs and then drowns the pigs. I mean, it doesn't appear in the Gospel of John, but yes, the story of the Legion. Uh, similar to Karis dying after accepting the demon. And Legion would be the sequel to The Exorcist, uh, the novel that Blatty would end up actually writing. Um, so it's all connecting to that. And the whole subliminal imagery, which you mentioned already, right? The scary demon face that you see. You see the face, um, what is it? 31 minutes and 29 seconds into the film. Apparently it flashes, uh, or that's in the extended cut. Apparently it flashes on screen for 40, at 45 minutes and one second into the film during a dream sequence. And then later during uh, Reagan's, Exorcism at one hour, 43 minutes, and 13 seconds. Um, and you mentioned it was Eileen Dietz, right? Mm-hmm. She did a lot. She did a ton of movies, also known for her work in Guiding Light and General Hospital. Friedkin said of the quote-unquote subliminal, by the way, it's not really subliminal messaging when you can actually see it. Yeah. Like, you know, he does say that VHS kind of ruined it later on because you couldn't, it was harder to see, but you, you could pause it and find it. He said of this, I saw subliminal cuts in a number of films before I ever put them in The Exorcist, and I thought it was a very effective storytelling device. The subliminal editing in The Exorcist was done for dramatic effect to create, achieve, and sustain a kind of dreamlike state, which I, I think everything he did achieved that in this in this the film. Uh, Captain Howdy like spooky face was actually a um, earlier version of the makeup that Dick Smith was going to use ah. for uh, Reagan. Um, I'm never going to pronounce it the same way twice. Um, so Rorg, <laughs> Joe Rogan, uh, but on set when they were beginning to start shooting a lot of the more spooky scenes, uh, either a stagehand or someone on the crew was like, I don't know, it looks kind of masky to me. And he demanded a change in the design. And that's how we got the uh, more self-inflicted kind of gr- uh, gangrenous appearance mm. of... Um, of of uh, which Linda is so Blair. great, and also the Captain Audi face though is legitimately scary looking to me today. You know what I mean? It, it, it just looks like if, a spooky clown. I, think I wasn't it's scary. As, I think it's creepy to me. I, I think it, nah, it man, that has. arteriogram that was where the fucking shit is. Uh, that when that neck blood spurts, that yeah. was where like I actually could feel my blood pressure just <laughs> drop. Did you really enjoy it? Uh, I enjoyed it. I was glad I finally saw it. I'm glad I got to see it as an adult, where I was like fully aware. Of everything, did it and sk- frighten you at all? Um, it was unsettling. It was intense. Um, you know, the I, I said it earlier. The fact that the movie does bring up all these uncomfortable themes even before the shit hits the fan was like very interesting. Uh, the performances are amazing. Yeah, uh, Ellen Burstyn carries the movie because it's her concern for her daughter that like really just like drives the action of the movie. Um, when she finally like. Uh, confronts Karis and kind of breaks down like just begging him to do something because she's run out of options my heart sank like it was real yeah um and obviously my brain immediately went to fucking postmodern college educated analysis mode right. where like you know the failure of this like self-made like rich upper class woman in the face of medical science to help and like it had to be the old patriarchy that comes in with their ancient true knowledge to like cure you know it was all very interesting um well also i liked what you had to say before we started oh, about yeah, yeah. <laughs> if it's a boy it's uh what it's, i mean okay so if a, this is the fact is is that a girl 
who is 12 years old in the in the story but you know Linda Blair was like 14 uh starting to mouth off react violently and masturbate a bunch uh that's just that's just adolescence that's just stuff we're already like scared of is just a teen girl like the we the innocence of a little girl is so precious in our society so like when a when a when a boy gets possessed by a demon, we have Damien, and Damien is going to destroy the world. Right? Damien will cover this world in darkness. Beware the power of Damien. Uh, when a little girl gets possessed, uh, eh, she's not pretty anymore. <laughs> she says <laughs> cocksucker. Ew. <laughs> there's well, like there's a little bit like I don't want to like you know I'm not going to yuck your yum. This movie is powerful and entertaining for a reason, but like there is some deep seated like patriarchy stuff happening in this movie. Uh, it was the first horror film to be nominated for a Best Picture Oscar and on that note I will also say I think that it really did help in a major way it is maybe the movie that legitimized the horror genre and made it more uh, in people's minds than just some schlocky genre that is just there for you know cheap thrills that and Rosemary's Baby were kind of yeah, a one two punch kind of right around that time yeah um, and so there were several different versions. I can't believe they actually had a uh, TV version in 1980 that was edited by Friedkin. They had to do a lot of changes. Uh, they Your actually, mother sucks lollipops and, and heck. Exactly. And they even edited the the look of the desecrated Virgin Mary statue. She was just like... Kick me! Kick me! She's just like crying blood instead of having like a weird dick. Um, and that many different versions came out. They had a special edition DVD that showed the uh, an alternate ending. Uh, Blatty, of course, rewrote his book himself later on. And in 2007, they released the version you've never seen, later titled The Extended Director's Cut, which did add The Spider Lock, among many other things. A movie that kept being changed and worked around. And it led to several sequels, of which I have not watched yet. Maybe I'll go circle back around and check them out. You've got The Exorcist 2, The Heretic. The more interesting one to me the is... The Heretic that, is such a duck shit it's movie. Bad. It's bad. How have you seen that? And uh, not we original? had a bad movie night at the Darkly oh, okay. offices, and that was it one, one That's week. That's funny. The Exorcist 3, though, is that supposed to be any good? Because I know Blatty directed it himself, and it's based on his own sequel to The Exorcist called Legion that he wrote in 1983. I really want... Actually, I might end up watching it this weekend. Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, because curious. Because there's... A deep argument that Exorcist 3 is actually the better movie. Really? Yeah. Okay, I gotta watch it. And uh, Exorcist The Beginning and then Dominion, prequel to The Exorcist, that came out in 2005. Woo! And there was the TV series that came out in 2017. All right, motherfuckers. I think that, for me, just about does it. I will just wrap up by saying it's it's when you steep horror in as much reality as humanly possible sometimes that really is what does the trick this film is powerful i love this movie by far one of my favorite horror films and uh i'm just want to say thanks to the exorcist for legitimizing the genre in a massive way and allowing for so many of phenomenal horror films to come after it most notably the shining uh and i don't know when texas chainsaw massacre came out but Again, those are probably my three right there, so I'm glad we got to cover one of them today. And uh, let me just say, the power of Christ compels you to check out our Patreon for bonus episodes every week. Uh, not only that, but at higher tiers, you get to talk to us on our exclusive Discord server, uh, vote in polls to decide future topics, or at certain tiers, if you're like uh, re ready to, to fucking put your money where your mouth is, you can tell us what topics to cover, and we will do that. There you go. Check me out on twitch.tv forward slash Holdenators Ho. I'm streaming. I'm 
streaming, and I'm creaming. What about you, Jake? You can follow me at Best Jake Young. And uh, hey, if you're like, uh, you know, if you're a fan of nerdy comedy programming, uh, check out Dropout.tv. Uh, my show Cartoon Hell is on there alongside. Uh, Fantasy High, which is one of the funniest live D&D games I've ever seen, as well as uh, a bunch of other really funny, cool stuff made by the people I like. And remember, always keep whizzing. And never stop bruising. Wow, we actually nailed it that time. Mm -hmm. Rack your look for spring at Nordstrom Rack and save up to 60% on brands you love. Rag and Bone, Vince, Marc Jacobs, Adidas, Joe's, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. Score new dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and sunglasses, plus updates for the family and home. Get your spring on for less, up to 60% less, today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.